Well, good morning, Masters community. Thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, guests and visitors, we welcome you indeed. Uh, my name is Adam Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, normally would be leading the corral, and um, but uh, thankfully we have um, other talented folks involved that can fill in when I'm not around to play my guitar and other things, but uh, um, thank you all for being here this morning. Today we're concluding our look at the books of First and Second Peter. Pastor Todd asked me to uh, wrap up our, our look at these books, um, and here having the very last few verses from Second Peter, um, there were some things that just uh, in considering all that, that Peter discusses in these letters um, got me to thinking some about what we had been looking at as a church over the past couple years and months and so on. Uh, you may recall just a couple weeks ago, Pastor Todd uh, mentioned the Exodus and how in the people of Israel who were captives in Egypt uh, were brought out, that there was so much that was taking place that we read about, but nothing really was happening until the, the night of the Passover and the Exodus actually kicked off. Um, so in a, in a similar way, I think this passage here is reflective of what the people of Israel had to go through not only at the Exodus, but we see somewhat repeated with the exile and the return out of Babylon. So it got me thinking about the fact that when we'd gone through First and Second Chronicles, now, uh, in which well, we didn't complete Second Chronicles, right? So we uh, we went through First Chronicles, but in Second Chronicles, uh, which, by the way, in the Hebrew Bible. The books of First and Second Chronicles are the last books of the Hebrew canon, um, and there's, I think, a good reason for that. Um, but uh, what comes out from the very last couple of verses in Second Chronicles 36, which we'll look at here in a second, is something that seemed to resonate with what Peter says here, and so. What I wanted to think about is kind of drop in on first century Mediterranean world that Peter's writing to, a letter which we would call a general epistle. Does anybody know why we call Peter's letters general epistles, like Hebrews, James, first second Peter, first second? You know why we call it the general epistles? It's because they're not addressing one specific church or one person, it's understood to be addressing all these churches wherever the letter would have been uh, delivered. So imagine you're living in first century Mediterranean world. You are, let's say you are Jewish by birth. It doesn't matter. I mean, you don't have to be Jewish. You could be a Gentile. But you are influenced by what we call Hellenism, a Hellenized culture. 
the time of Alexander the Great and his conquering of the whole Mediterranean world, the Middle East, brought about all of the influence of Greek culture, the Greek pantheon, their gods, their, their philosophies and ideas and learning and so on, was this cultural influence over the whole world. Then, of course, Rome came along and overthrew the Greek empire and was now, the, the, the people of the first century were under Roman rule. And, of course, there's so many things that are like copycat ideas between the Greeks and the Romans and, and so forth. And many of the uh, deities of their pantheon were picked up and ideas that are carried, carried out. Well, so many of these ideas are passed around uh, just from day-to-day -day life. Uh, ideas that you, you would see uh, in, in some of these uh, ancient cities and so on. You would see uh, statues to certain deities or ideas that are present in just the way they interact with one another in the culture. Uh, and this can have a negative effect on what you're learning as someone who's heard the gospel. So there's so much of these ideas in the sort of the currency of, of philosophical thought is being coupled with ideas that come from Scripture, God's revelation given through the apostles and prophets and passed down to us, even to you and me here today. I don't want us ever to think of the ancient world as just some vague idea that's only in the past. Much of what they dealt with in the early church we are dealing with right now today in this world, in 21st century North America. We're here. We're living it, you know. So quickly, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles, about in the middle of the Bible before you get to the Psalms and, the, and so on. So Cyrus was the king. You know, you had the Assyrian Empire came and took away the northern tribes. That was around 722 B.C. Then sometime later, uh, after the Babylonians uh, conquered the Assyrians, they took the southern part of Israel, what we call Judah, and destroyed the temple in 586 and took the people into captivity. The Babylonians here are east and south of Israel, and was, uh, well, it was a, a, a pagan. It was a pagan world. They had their own set of ideas about gods and, and ideas, philosophies, and organizing principles for the way the world works and so on, which was an influence on those who were brought into captivity. Well, in Second Chronicles, this is at the end of the captivity in Babylon, because while they were in captivity, then the Persians, uh, or the Medes, the Medo-Persian people, overthrew the Babylonians. So you got Assyrians, it's almost alphabetical, you got A, B, P, and then back to G, and then R. So Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans, okay? So uh, th this is at the end of Cyrus's reign. In the very last couple verses here, verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might 
uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's interesting. Hold on to that. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And that ends Second Chronicles. So the writer of the Chronicles points out that Cyrus is thinking about the, the, the word of the Lord that was fulfilled through the mouth of Jeremiah. Well, let's look at what Jeremiah had to say. Jeremiah's ministry was at the time when the second deportation occurred. In other words, the fall of Israel and lived during the time of the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah 25, verses 12 and 13. Jeremiah says, Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon the land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. That's just one spot. Let's move now to Jeremiah 33. And this is beautiful. And here's where I, I am uh, seeing this kind of, uh, kind of call and response between what happened in history and what Peter is calling the church to uh, in his letter. So Jeremiah 33, let's read verses 10 through 15. It's a little bit longer. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast. There shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing and they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts. For the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In this place that is a waste without man or beast, and in all its cities there shall be again habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah. Flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. You can see... Even in that situation, historically, how there is something of an echo, redemptive historically, in what Peter is describing with the church. And what now happens that we're in the new covenant and this coming return of Jesus Christ in the day of eternity. So in the midst of this, now we can turn back to Second Peter. Asking the question, how does the church wait well 
for the church of Christ, for the return of Christ. And so living in light of eternity, which is kind of the title for First uh, and Second Peter, living in, in, in light of eternity, we are to be diligent in holiness, remembering the patience of Christ, grounded and growing in Christ through Scripture, all to his glory. So this first idea taken straight from verse 14, we are called as God's people. The thing that's interesting here is how Peter, you might have noticed in 1 Peter, has adopted many of the labels and the terms of ancient Israel and applies them directly to the church so that what in fact does happen in, in history is taken up. It's sort of echoed. It's a, a, a repeated in the new covenant in a way that is uh, unique. In fact, it's sort of ratcheted up. Everything happens to be. There has been for a long, long time this sort of an idea that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the God of the New Testament, and this is a God of vengeance and anger and power and wrath. And here's Jesus who's so so helpful and heals everybody and, and so on. And it's like, well, have you read Matthew 23? You know, woe to you, you, you know, vipers. Uh, and so he turned away a lot of people, right? Um, so just as the people in uh, Israel were called upon to remember their uh, return out of exile, coming back into their land to rebuild the temple, to reestablish this edifice, which was uh, an emblem of their relationship to this God, the maker of heaven and earth, uh, Peter, in a, in a different, in a, I think, unique way here, is calling on us to remember, too, and to act on how we are to live in light of this return of Jesus Christ, which is a far greater exile than what Israel uh, returned from. Far greater. One of the things, actually, Pastor Todd brought this up uh, one time, was that uh, he, he felt like he didn't think about eternity enough. And that is something that... that is maybe easy to forget that we are so consumed with day, our daily walk and daily progress and so on, sometimes we forget the goal. We forget why. We forget what this is all about. And Peter walks us through this. We are to be diligent in holiness. That is the first idea of how to wait well for Christ's return. Notice he says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, remember he had just mentioned about the, the melting of the elements of the universe and so on. Some would say, okay, well, that's just metaphorical language for destruction and so on. Um, well, there's been so much talk about a new heavens and new earth where he says where righteousness dwells. Um, why not think about the elements melting? God can do it. He spoke it with such power he made it happen. He made it appear out of nothing. He can destroy it. He says, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Notice, because Peter has been using these terms and labels that had been applied to Israel, notice this language. He says, he says to be found 
by him without spot or blemish and at peace. When you read words like without spot or blemish, or like in Ephesians about the church being cleansed with washing of the water with the word and without spot and so on, what is it bringing up? He's using the language of sacrifice, the language of those who would bring an offering to the temple, the best of whatever they had as an offering to their God. It is to be without spot, without blemish. And as his people, we are to be the same, to be diligent, to be without spot or blemish. That is, being diligent, that, uh, your, your translation may say, make every effort to do that, or to strive, or to be zealous for this. That, that word kind of has that same flavor all throughout. Be diligent to be without spot or blemish. Under the old covenant, God demanded that these animals be in the best condition, the ec- most excellent condition of all the animals that someone owned. And he says, to be at peace. Now, it, as I was thinking through, I was like, well, what, it, why, what does he mean to be at peace? There could be some kind of uh, social situations or something because of what he addresses in First Peter about... Um, you know, uh, the problem of uh, persecution and slander and so forth among Christians in the early world, uh, in the early church, uh, be at peace. Well, it could have that, but I think he's maybe thinking of this idea in a different sense, and that is to be at peace with Christ. Now, aren't we already at peace with Christ? I mean, he bought us by his blood and has broken down the middle wall of separation, has announced peace to you who are near and those who are far off. He himself is our peace, right? Like Paul says that, we're at peace with Christ. Well, I think he's saying this because of the influence of false teachers. There is this pernicious and slippery sort of influence that can come that might draw you away from the Lord. Why the warning passages say in the book of Hebrews? I think it's the same thing here. Be diligent to be found holy without spot or blemish and to be at peace, to be at peace with Christ. You keep, as some would say, keeping short accounts with him, right? You confess your sins right away. Don't walk in the the wallow in the mire, like uh, Second Peter says, you know, like a like a dog returning to its vomit, or a or a pig wallowing in its mud, and so on. Don't be like that. Don't live in that. You be diligent to be spotless, and be at peace. This means all of your thoughts, your speech, your attitudes, and actions. Pay careful attention to these, because. You are a stranger and an exile in this land, right? Remember Peter saying that in 1 Peter? Living good lives before the world, Peter says. Live such good lives that the pagans, before the pagan people, that they would ask you, well, what's the hope of, why do you have such a hope? Why do you got to live like this, you know? And then you can share the gospel. Live good lives before the world and love one another, says in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Loving one another with a sincere brotherly love. And so all of this in verse 14 has to do with the fact that Christ is returning. Peter is hammering the idea of a high ethical standard that Christians are to live out. The ethics. You can't ever divorce 
what you are in Jesus Christ from how you are to live. You must never do that. What you are will be on display in how you live. Pastor Todd articulated that very well last week. This is what you are. Here's how you behave. And I guarantee you, if you behave this way and it doesn't line up with what you say you believe, then, well, this must be really what you are. This is the way in which we demonstrate spiritual sacrifices that we offer up to God since we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and so forth, waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. So the second idea of how the church might wait well is to remember the patience of Christ. He says, and I kind of, you might notice I broke up the, the, the verses like, Adam, this is so kind of messy. Why did you stop in this place? That's kind of weird. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So what's he saying? Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now you recall... Well, this, this idea of patience, by the way, could be rendered like the idea of long-suffering. Um, it's interesting, the word in Greek is kind of like uh, two words that mean big and passion. Big or even anger, even wrath, big wrath. But it's translated in such a way that we, it comes into English as long-suffering, patience. Uh, forbearance, uh, this delay. For those of who, who are of the elect, who are not yet believers, Peter addresses those people in chapter 3, verse 9, where this idea of patience of God is this merciful display of his restraint toward them in order to give them an opportunity to repent of their sin. Now, the reason why I say it's of the toward elect non-believers because those who are not of the elect who are not believers they are going to be destroyed that's just true god has chosen those unto himself set his affections on them from all eternity and it is to them that this mercy is extended giving them an opportunity why do i say that because peter in chapter three says that he's not willing that any should perish Now, it's true that, yes, God's not willing that even non-believers and the non-elect, it's not like he's like gets joy out of the idea of just totally destroying them. But in this way, he is not showing his patience toward them in the way Peter means there. He is waiting for all of his elect to come to him. That's why the delay. And so for believers then, those who are of the elect and are now believers... This patience is what we are to count as salvation. Why is that? That's an interesting way. You know, why, why when we're thinking about ultimate salvation, this deliverance from sin and death and corruption and so on, why do we consider this delay of his return as salvation? Well, I think it's because in the early church, and even today, that so many are under the influence of false teaching and this 
combination of ideas and trying to marry it up with Christianity that we are under the threat of believing a false gospel. So that those of us, as we live in this life, waiting for the return of Christ, we count it as salvation because there is the possibility that you could succumb to the influence of false teachers. As you are grounded in Jesus Christ, you are saved and secure there. Even when the false teachers show up, you're there. Count this delay as salvation. This is the day of eternity, even now, as it were. It's as though the great white throne judgment is brought forward into time, and the judgment that will be rendered against every unbeliever has already been taken care of at the cross in 33 A.D., you, brothers and sisters, have been judged already because you are covered by the blood, the death of God the Son on your behalf. God the Son became a human being, lived a perfect righteous life, and died at the hands of both Jews and Gentiles. This division of humanity raised itself up against the sovereign Lord of the universe and destroyed his Son for you. You are saved, brothers and sisters. Count this delay as salvation. So how do you live until you wait for that ultimate day when he does return? Count it as salvation. You be diligent. Notice then the word that Peter uses here. He says, count the patience of our Lord. I just thought that was interesting that he's using this word that invokes the character of God. He doesn't just use some sort of a temporal term about, uh, you know, some delay or uh, just the mere passing of time. And, uh, you know, he's not just using some bland, nebulous, temporal term about the delay. No, he's bringing up the idea of the character of God. God's patience, his long-suffering, Oh, that he has to put up with you and me and the rest of the world. You know, uh, Brandon brought this up about uh, having an operation and maintenance manual. And he gets calls sometimes from people that are like, uh, do I just turn it off and then back on? And, and you know, Brandon's like, I wrote this manual. It's like, how long shall I bear with you people? <laughs> So you can imagine God's long-suffering and patience toward us, even his own children whom he dearly loves, but even more to the outside world who will never come to know him. So he brings up a word that invokes the character of God, not just some naturalistic or mechanistic word, some temporal term. So what's the third idea? in waiting well for the return of Christ to be grounded and growing in Christ through Scripture. Let's read that. Second part of verse 16, he says, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So in this section, Peter again is addressing the concern of false teachers who have come within the church. He makes it clear here too, by the way, which you've obviously noticed, I'm sure, that he considers Paul's letters to be scripture. And he does so by saying they twist it, you know, the, the ignorant and unstable twist his words just as they do the other scriptures. For them, especially as a Hebrew uh, who's been brought to faith in Jesus Christ by grace through faith and so on, he's, uh, he understands now that, or we should understand, that when he speaks of scriptures, he's thinking of the Hebrew canon, the whole Old Testament as we call it. And he's lining up Paul's letters, whichever ones may have been present at the time Peter wrote this, to be scripture. And so, you know, he admits that there are things in what Paul wrote, and you can assume extending this idea, that there are things in them that are difficult to understand. You know, you can admit that. It's okay. I, I don't understand everything. Um, and so from a human perspective, this is true. But guess what? It's those things that might be hard to understand that become the entry point for false teaching. Listen to me clearly. There may be things that are difficult to understand. Those become the window of opportunity for false teaching and heresy because you twist one little idea and it's like a domino effect. It'll mess up your theology from here all the way out, right? It's almost like a, the idea of having a laser beam that would point into outer space and then have one right next to it that's just a whisker off. By the time it reaches infinity, it's an infinity apart because it's just a little out of whack. The false teachers here uh, that he speaks of are those who would use this opportunity to take things that are difficult to understand and twist them to their own destruction. And so um, it's, it's interesting here because... Uh, this, the, this, there are two specific traits, as we've already read, is that these false teachers are both ignorant and unstable. <laughs> wow, what, a, what an evaluation. They are ignorant. That is, really, they would be willfully ignorant. What we read about the false teachers in Second Peter is, really, these are people that are bent on the flesh. And so they are willingly ignorant. They willingly refuse to hear truth about Jesus Christ. They willingly refuse to hear what the scriptures have to say. And they don't seek to understand what scripture really teaches about Christ. It's driven by a sinful desire to satisfy the flesh, to do whatever you want without any consequences. Huh. Sound familiar? These can come in the form of legalism or libertinism. Here's some ideas. And really, by the way, those, both of those are two sides of the same coin. One example is the idea of what is called syncretism. It's the idea of, of blending or mixing two religious ideas to become a whole new thing. One example that is present in our day is what has become known as the Hebrew Roots Movement. Now, uh, we had a couple weeks ago, Pastor Clay from Dynamic Life, he talked about uh, 
the influence of Dr. Tomlinson from Midwestern is a, is a huge backgrounds guy, and he said he, he's become like this background nut now because he loves what, what Tomlinson will talk about. Well, guess what? That's exactly the route that the Hebrew Roots movement will take, is that, well, you know, how should you read the New Testament through a Hebrew mindset? How would a Jewish person have thought about this or this or that? Next thing you know, you have to give up the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ because you're going to have to start eating a certain kind of food, dressing a certain kind of way, observing a certain kind of festival, and on and on. Because if you don't, you're not really one of God's people. You see then this syncretistic idea of what God has superseded in the person and work of Christ and has abolished in Christ, Ephesians 3, verse 15, 2, verse 15. And they're trying to dredge it up again. I mean, that whole argument is destroyed in the book of Galatians, in the book of uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You see over and over and over again how Paul has had to deal with that. It's a, it's a new form, what I would call neo-Judaizing heresy. But it's also a kind of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this idea that you would have a secret knowledge about how to know God truly, how to know this divine being in a way that nobody else does. You, you got to have a secret knowledge. So it's, this kind of, it's, it's a weird sort of uh, mixture. Very legalistic, of course. Then, of course, we probably all know this about the prosperity gospel, the word faith movement. That is totally libertinism. That is a way of taking scripture and twisting it to satisfy your own lusts. Your lust for money, for ease, for sex, for power, whatever it is, you know, because God, you're one of God's kids, you know, one of God's children. He wants the best for you, the most for you now. Well, what about waiting, like Peter says? Other things, like, uh, and Jared Shaw brought this up last week in Equipping Hour, talking about this moralistic therapeutic deism, where it's, it's a form of deism where there's this one creator God that made all things, and then it's hands off, no providence left. He just lets everything run on its own. And more, it's moralistic because, well, if you're a good person, whatever that means, you know, Christianity, what is it like the 11th commandment is be nice. So Christianity is boiled down to just be nice to people. Nice people go to heaven. And so it's moralistic. It's therapeutic because, well, you can call on God whenever you need him. I mean, my goodness, that almost sounds like uh, Tony Robbins and personal power and awaken the giant within, you know, and you tap into this power source in the universe and get whatever you want and be successful and have Ferraris and big houses and everything. Um, and so there are other philosophies and worldviews like naturalism, uh, naturalism or uh, scientism. That's been huge lately. I mean, that's really come to the surface, especially about all this stuff with COVID is you cannot question science. Well, what is science? What is it? All it is, is frankly, it is a man-centered understanding of the universe through observation. 
That's all it is. You take a look at things and you say, you make, hmm, it seems to be doing this over and over again, so we can conclude that that did it, right? It's science. But scientism assumes that there's an infallibility with your observations and conclusions about the world. Well, then where's a miracle? Can you ever have a miracle then? I think it's a miracle. We were talking about this. My wife and I were talking about this not long ago. You know, it's like when, when, a, when a woman is pregnant and that little baby inside the womb is in there, what happens when the baby comes out of the womb? It breathes in air. I'm telling you, if there's anything miraculous, it's the idea that a human being can live without air inside that dark little space, living and growing. But the moment they come out, they have to have air, and they can't go back. Try breathing liquid now. See how that works, right? That's a miracle. That, to me, is miraculous. And God made it. He said, it shall be this way, and it works. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's a miracle. So people that are like that, and then I was going to talk about politics, but I'm not going to. Because, I mean, there are so much, so many worldview ideas that are brought to the foreground here in our present situation, right? I mean, the irreducible minimum of whatever you are has to come down to either your skin color, your sex, or your desires, blah, blah, blah. And so minimizing what you are as a Christian really to nothing more than a vote, nothing more than a voting block. You become a number to this group or this group. Where is the fact that you've been born again by the Holy Spirit? God, the maker of the universe, called you to himself, and they just use it like it's just, vote for me, because, well, you're that. Or, they, or I should say they t- totally dismiss your Christianity and say, well, you're, I don't know, left-handed, gluten-free, one-legged, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, yeah, so vote for me, because I am the first of those. I am that for my constituents, blah, 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 right? They are unstable. These people are ignorant about Scripture, about the revelation of God, and they are unstable. That is, they are unsettled, they're unsteady, they're weak. They are unstable in a spiritual sense because, really, when you start mixing up the simplicity of the gospel with all these other worldviews and stuff, how do you ever know who's right? You would never be able to pass a purity test with this group or this group or that idea or that philosophy. You can never do it. Guess what, brothers and sisters? The purity test has been passed, and his name is Jesus Christ. Peter says he twists these ideas, these people twist these ideas to their own destruction. And that's interesting because that word twist is only found two times here in Second Peter. And The earliest reference, as far as I could tell, comes from the 5th century B.C., and the idea, the word to twist, has reference to the twisting of limbs on a torture device in order to extract evidence or information or get a confession out of somebody. Isn't that interesting that this ironic way that Peter would use that word? They twist spiritually the scriptures to their own destruction as though they are putting themselves 
on a, on a rack and being wrenched around and, and twisted and deformed. That's a, that's a horrible image, and they're doing it to themselves. And so this is why we must be diligent to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to make every effort to be diligent because of what God has revealed to us in his word. So it happens. Um, so we as the new people, the new covenant people of God are encouraged to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It happens by learning the word of God, the Bible. Scripture is God's revelation of himself, which expresses truth about reality. In one sense, you could say it is reality, but it expresses the truth about reality in light of the ultimate reality, who is Jesus Christ himself. That is to say, Scripture gives the interpretation of all things that God has done in history. It gives the interpretation of it, of his deeds he interprets it. He says, this is why I did what I did, right? Which thereby gives meaning to our existence. And uh, the meaning of our existence as we live out our faith in this present situation. All of this is to say that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And he is the judge. He is God in human flesh. And he will bring, when he comes, he will bring judgment on this fallen world. He will judge the living and the dead. So growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ means being saturated with the big ideas of the Bible. Study it so as to see his hand at work in all things. Treasure it so as to enjoy the Lord through all the experiences that you have in him, life in him. And live it out so as to demonstrate what it means to be a Christian. People of faith and hope and love. That's what scripture is for in the meantime. Trying to harmonize this with something sinful is not good. Are you trying to do that? Are you here today holding in your head something that you cannot harmonize really with the truth of the Bible? This is why theology matters. It matters for what and who you are and how to live. Last idea. Do everything to the glory of Jesus Christ, verse 18. He says, to him be glory, both now to the day of eternity. Amen. There are only three places in the whole New Testament where the letter concludes with a doxology. There's Romans chapter 16, the end of, chapter, of Jude, verses 24 and 25, and then here, 2 Peter 3. The thing that's unique about this one is it specifically is a doxology of Jesus Christ. Now, there are other doxologies in the New Testament that speak of Christ specifically, but not one that concludes the letter. But I'm taking this not just to be the conclusion of a letter like, with love, signed John Deere, or Dear John, or Adam, or whoever. It's not just the conclusion of a letter. I take this to mean you do all of these things which are to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is to his glory. He is specifically exalting the person of Jesus Christ. 
So, as we pursue the things that Peter sets out in this word, we will be waiting well as the church for his return. Be diligent in your holiness. Remember the patience of Jesus Christ. Grow in Christ through scripture, doing all things for his glory. Because all things were made by him and for him. And so just as we thought from the very beginning there, how those who returned out of the exile to go back into their own land, uh, there's a way in which this sort of echoes that idea of, of sort of a call and response. It, it, it's like a reflection of what happened with the people of God under the old covenant. Here we live in the new covenant in a way that's ratcheted up. It's we're, we're not just going to a piece of land in the Middle East we can call our home so that we can rebuild some centralized, you know, uh, emblem of our relationship to God. No, brothers and sisters, we as the new covenant people of God, the true Israel, the new people of God, we are waiting for our ultimate salvation. We are waiting for a home that belongs to us. We are made for that new life, that new land. It's a new creation. I just saw a thing yesterday where we really can't even comprehend it. We can't even imagine it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that no ear has heard, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. It's never even entered into your head. It's like, well, I mean, I can imagine a lot of pretty awesome stuff. Like, you can't imagine the new heaven, new earth. I don't know why you can't, but you can't because he says you can't. It's going to be different. And your body will be different. Isn't that awesome? Your body will be different. Made for this existence where you can take on the unshielded glory of Jesus Christ himself. You will forever be in his presence where whatever desires you might have here, which may be legitimate things that God gave you as a human being, as an image bearer, those things are fulfilled. They are brought to fullness when you gaze upon the Lord. We'll be able to do things and understand things and see things that we cannot possibly even imagine. It's a whole new existence. It's completely unlike anything we've ever seen. And, and it's awesome. I can't wait. And so in light of fellowship season, don't privatize your Christianity. Don't privatize it or think that you have some corner on the truth like a Gnostic would do. Uh, or think that, you know, your salvation belongs only to you in a way that no one else could possibly understand. This letter is written to the whole church, and this is how the church is to wait, and to wait well for that day of eternity. He calls it a day, but it's a day of eternity. It's a new day. It's completely different. Like C.S. Lewis would say, man, we're just on the title page right now. We haven't even started the first chapter of real life. 
in Jesus Christ. We haven't even begun. It's awesome. Let's pray and enjoy the Lord the rest of our time together. Father, we give you thanks for this letter. We thank you for our brother, the Apostle Peter, who writing to us from so long ago, his words impact us today because it's, it's your word through him. Lord, thank you for speaking to us. Lord, thank you for giving us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to obey you, Lord. Help us indeed to be diligent in our holiness. Help us, Lord, to count your patience as our salvation. Help us, Lord, to love your word and to study it and to live it out. And most of all, that your son would be glorified for whom you have done all these things, Father. You, Lord Jesus, our Savior, and you, Holy Spirit, our Comforter, and the one who applies all these things to our hearts. And all God's people said, Amen.